I'm Steve Fisher. Born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, Matthew Rayford is an award-winning chef who has returned to his roots on the family farm in Georgia. With his wife, Tia, also born in Connecticut, they honor the land and the Gullah Geechee cuisine and culture. So my makeup is very uh, West African in nature and eating and in those food ways. And being raised in coastal Georgia makes me so Gullah Geechee. They're my guests on Life Slices. We are here today with Matthew and Tia Rayford, and I'm going to start, Matthew, with you. What is the recipe for Matthew Rayford? Tell us the ingredients that make you who you are today. The ingredients that make me who I am today. It's kind of like an origin story, huh? Or yeah. origin ingredient. I guess it would be my mom and daddy who are from ancestors from the Takan and Akar tribes from Ghana and Cameroon. I was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, however, and moved to my family's land on my mother's side of family in Brunswick, Georgia. So my makeup is very uh, West African in nature and eating and in those food ways. And being raised in coastal Georgia makes me so Gullah Geechee. How did you become a chef? Ooh, long story short, you know, my, my dad was a baker by trade in the 50s and 60s. And he, when I got, got ready to graduate from high school, he forbid me to do anything that had to do with cooking outside of cooking for myself. So I showed him I went into the United States Army and did not cook, didn't even do anything that resembled cooking. I started off in reconnaissance. So through all of the places that I ever got to live and stay and all of those kinds of things, I really started just like honing my skills by going into some of those kitchens. When I was in Korea, I went to some really nice kitchens. When I was in Germany, some really nice kitchens. And I even learned how to make shawarma while I was in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, a lot of those things, I think, have uh, molded a lot of things that have to do with my food and the way I like to cook. What is an ecological horticulturalist? Did I even oh, wow. say that right? <laughs> Ecological horticulturist. It is someone that has studied and tried to understand what it takes to create a better food system using uh, sustainable regenerative practices that most of them are built on the old ways, which are things like making your own compost or your own fertilizer without any additional chemicals, paying attention to everything like the weather pattern that's going on right now. The Northeast is getting ready to get hit with a super storm. We're getting ready to get a lot of rain, but this is kind of our rainy season also as spring starts to open up, but just paying attention to those things and understanding, okay, I got to start planting now. We also do some things that are based on biodynamics also. So I think ecological horticulturist is someone that understands that soil is a living organism and that we have to work with the land, not against the land. I like that. What is your philosophy on meal creation? When you set out to make a new dish, what goes through your head? I guess it really depends on what the ingredient is that I'm starting with. If it's shrimp, I usually try my best to use local shrimp that uh, come out of our estuaries right here in Brunswick, Georgia. I try to use the freshest of all ingredients. But I think that's a, a thing for all chefs with T and I both being a chef. I think we look for the best ingredients first and then go into the creation process of the smells and the tastes and the look that we want. Do you two chef together? Oh, yeah. Do are there a lot of fights between what should go in and what shouldn't? You know, I think it's more 
well, we split duties. So, and, and how that works is everything culinary, regardless of whether it's a recipe I created or Tia created or we're working on together, she takes the lead on. And when it comes to farming, I take the lead. So that way we allow both of our creative processes to always be being shown and highlighted, but understanding that everything kind of has a guide that it needs for it to come out to be amazing. So for, for us, we found that when I farm, I can give that direction and things come out perfectly. And when we cook, she can give that direction and things come out perfectly. I mean, even if we go back to just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Charleston at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival and which was an amazing event. And we had to do some fish and they ended up giving us some cobia, which was about four feet long, maybe 50 pounds. And Tia just grabbed it. She was like, this is how we're going to cut it. This is what I want. This is how we, and it wasn't, it was a no brainer. I didn't have to think about it because I already knew that I had these other parts that I had to be concerned with within the dish. And she was just like, I got this. And so I think a lot of those kinds of things play out very well with both of us. Don't you think? I would agree. Yeah. How often do you surprise each other with what you come up with? Oh, I think that's all the time. (laughs) I think that's all the time. We've only been married 10 months. So, and we've only lived together for 10 months also. So it's not like we've been around each other forever. But I think a lot of it, I don't know, on on my behalf, I think it's also kind of hard to like truly surprise. But I think it's more of like, Oh, I wouldn't, I, I'm gonna try to do it this way to see if I can even get a reaction. Yeah, I would say it's not, it's not a surprise. It's, it is a, like Matthew said, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Like we came up with a dish last week. It was a grit cake mm-hmm. with macerated tomatoes and, Caramelized onions uh, and garlic. Yeah. And then we also had roasted oysters on it. And we, up until we plated the dish, we didn't really know how it was going to come together. Right. And it ended up being a warm oyster salad on top of the grit cakes with a pea shoot, with pea shoots and almost an oyster Oyster vinaigrette. vinaigrette. Yeah, we took all the right. liquid we from the oysters. The, yeah, we took and made liquid. a vinaigrette with it. So, right. so and and that was that was after though we had made most of the components separately, mm-hmm. had tasted them all separately, and it was like, okay, so what's the next move? Like, what what how how, how do we make this like one level up? And when we tasted that oyster liqueur, we were like, ooh, this would make an amazing oyster vinaigrette. And next thing you know, that's where we were. We also took that oyster liquid and added it to the macerated tomatoes. Yes. Yes. So it had this, 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 even though there weren't oysters in the tomato, it still carried that flavor. So there was a lot of bridging. Yeah. And sometimes those things happen organically, organically. You know, we didn't think about all the liquid that we were going to get roasting off the oysters. It was like, Ooh, save that. Yeah. You know, we both got really excited. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. How do you even know where to start? When I cook, I, I'm I'm just a I'm a bad cook. That, let's put it that way. So I, I just throw food together that will hopefully keep me nourished, and and I'm not going to open a restaurant on it. <laughs> but I go, oh, this looks good. Let me let me put some of this in. Let me put some of this in. Let me put mm-hmm. some of this in. Bad choices. Bad choices. Go together. <laughs> so, 
not organic. Well, how, I, how I, do you even know where to start? I, I think, well, I think for us, having a love for food has caused us to like really pay attention to not saying that you don't have a love for food and that's the reason, but I think there's like, like when, when we look at, even if we buy something that's processed, we're looking at all the ingredients that went in it mm-hmm. and then we taste it before we start making anything. Like we have arugula that's growing outside right now that's been growing for the last year and it is like what? three feet it's about three feet three three, four four feet tall right now and the more we cut from it and leave it like we cut from it and we leave it for weeks before we go back and so i think that that's also the reason that the plant is done but but the greens on it have changed in flavor over the last just in the last few weeks the Mm -hmm. greens the greens flavors have changed so i think it's like knowing those kinds of things it's also trial and error it's just trial and error you, and and understanding flavor, I would even say from a regional and, and national perspective, knowing what food items naturally go together mm, yeah. also yeah. is part of yeah. that. So when you think like pork, apples, and cabbage, right? That's mm. a natural, yeah. they go together. You know, you get the juiciness of the apple and the pork with the crispness of the cabbage and then from that, you have your base, right? So, so it's understanding your fundamentals of what goes together, trial and error, because not everything goes together and you're going to make a bad dish. I've made, you know, I've, I remember making a blueberry beurre blanc one time and was like, that was a bad, bad idea. Bad, bad idea. <laughs> bad, bad idea. That's, and that's going- my dinner every night. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the, the bad idea my- came yeah. from the color. <laughs> the color of the beurre blanc is what was, it wasn't the flavor, it's the color, right? The color wasn't appetizing oh, as much as, and it was the flavor yeah, too on that flavor, oh, Okay, yeah. I'll leave yeah. it alone. Yeah. I tried to savor on that one, but you know. <laughs> what, explain what Gullah Gucci is. Am I pronouncing, Gullah Geechee, am I Gullah Geechee. Gullah Geechee, yes. So Gullah and Geechee are the exact same groups of people. It just depends on what part of the, uh, Gullah Geechee corridor you're on. So I'm closer to like, um, well, I'm in Georgia. And so the term has always been Geechee, big rice eaters, subsistence fishermen and farmers and uh, basket weavers and rice growers. And the Gullah folks that are more the Carolinian groups of folks, we all are still doing the exact same thing. Same rice folks, same basket weavers, all of that. And so it became one, it became one word instead of two words to describe the same group of people from, from this. And so just to give you an, an idea, we're talking North Carolina to almost central Florida. That's a pretty big coastal space to talk about a group of people of coming from. And so I think that's where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that you've based a lot of your dishes, a lot of your recipes on your childhood meals. Mm-hmm. What have you brought to them that have made them different from what you had growing up? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from the experiences of having lived in other places and then understanding also that not all food needs to even be tweaked. Like my, I, I have in the, in the book, Effie Shrimp Creole, which is a shrimp Creole dish that my mom has been doing ever since I was a kid. And at the same token, I also have coastal paella in the book also. So all I did was take my, the, that basic, which in, in the Carolina would be called a perlu, 
or and then in Savannah it would be called red rice. So I start off with those basic components of tomatoes and rice and peppers and onions and all of that stuff and move it into what is now a coastal paella from my understanding of the Mediterranean and understanding of the space and all the people that have lived and make food and foodways what it is today here on the East Coast. How would you describe the flavor profiles of, of these dish? Do they t- tend to lean toward spicy, savory, sweet? What are- well, the, the book is based on the elements. So, so I based it not on spiciness or, or heat or anything like that. I, I based it on earth, which is things that are grown from the earth, water. So anything that comes out of the water. We also have a uh, fire. So things that need a lot of like massive amount of heat, like pork, roasted whole hog, steak and the like. We have wind. And so for wind, it is uh, anything that flies, anything that has wings. Then we break it down into nectar or sweeten, anything that is going to be sweet in nature. And then lastly, we have spirits, the spirits. So, um, and that's anything that you drink that uh, allows you to be slightly intoxicated. That's my favorite chapter so far. Yes, it has to be. There you go. Boilermakers and gin rickies are our favorite. That and some bourbon. Let's talk about the book a, a little bit since we have started talking about it. Tia, what do you bring to the table? On the, pardon the pun. So um, Matthew started this book four years ago. Yeah, Started working now four years ago. We just connected last year again after we had not seen each other for 23 years. We both went, we met at the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York as Mm -hmm. students. And we, we had a, a when I was 10, I was 10, I was 10 years old when we met. I'm not that old. Which which means I was five. So wow. we... <laughs> Ooh, there's a fight brewing after. I know. <laughs> she just had a birthday. Somebody, that, that, somebody mama me. Um, so after 23 years of you know reconnecting, Matthew wrote this book solely with his other collaborators. But I will say that I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine some 12, 13 years yeah, ago definitely. that they had asked me, was I interested in writing a cookbook mm-hmm. at that time? And I said to this person, I'm not ready personally, but I know someone who is. Mm-hmm. And I connected that person to Matthew. Mm-hmm. That turned into... Its own separate own friendship, separate, yeah, friendship and relationship collaboration, collaboration yeah. that I would say, if anything, that was this, 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 at that time, 12 years ago, that's when the seed was planted for him to write. Yeah. In, or, or actually, it, it to actually helped, go to contribute. someone and actually say, hey, I understand that you do publishing. You know, what do you think about this thought? And I think that that, yeah, I can definitely say that. I would say the, what sparked it even earlier Prior to that was me sitting at Natalie Dupree's on her porch one day with her talking and her saying to me, so Matthew, what do you want to do? What, what do you, what's next for you? And I said, you know, I really want to write a book. And from that became this whole plethora of people that I started to meet on my own. And then when Tia mentioned Erwin. Actually, it was 20 years ago. 
It was in the uh, t- 2000. 15, 15. Yeah, 2000. Yeah, it was 2000. Yeah. It, it was kind of like, oh. So in between, I had never talked to someone that had actually published Mm-hmm. Or was it not not published? It was a publisher. Mm-hmm. I'd always saw the people that had like self made their own, uh, uh, self published, mm-hmm. and I knew that that wasn't something I wanted wanted to do per se at that moment in time because I felt I needed more structure. And I would say that that relationship that Tia was able to cultivate and have me meet this person allowed me to understand structure when it came to like writing and. You know, they say you don't know what you don't know and surround yourself with people much smarter than you. And so that's exactly what I was able to do. And that's even why we're married now is because I need to marry somebody that was smarter than me. Well, y'all should have that luck. He just dug himself out. And and I have to say the book is delightful. It it really brings you into the whole culture and the whole geographical area. And you feel like you're there. So and then you come away from reading very hungry. It's good. It's have to beautiful. run to the kitchen and eat something terrible that doesn't match up because <laughs> you couldn't you know, match the, the, the recipes. Let, you know, you, let me tell you something that's interesting, Steve. You're so funny, man. I, I'm loving this. We're going to have to, stick we're going to have cereal. to do, yeah, stick, stick to the cereal. cereal. Yeah. <laughs> stick the cereal. That's what she tells her cousin all the time. Stick the cereal, cousin. Don't, don't even boil the water for the ramen. Don't even no, do it because no. you put in too many spice packets. I but, even ruined cereal. It's right. <laughs> See, there you go. There you go. There you go. Oh, my goodness. But but I will say this about, about Bress and Yam, which is the name of the book. Bress and Yam is put out by Countryman Press, and the name means bless and eat. So Bress and Yam. Bress and Yam. Yes, means bless and eat in Gullah Geechee. And I, I wanted to write my first book along those lines because it's something that oftentimes we take for granted, but we also know we probably should be doing, which is bless your food before you eat. So bless and eat, we want that that uh, connection to Mother Earth to be there and to say thank you for uh, for all that's that that's the bounty that we have in front of us. Now, if you walked into a Chinese restaurant and said that, would they k- kick you out? No, no, no. I don't think they kick me out. They might ask me exactly what I'm saying, and I'd, I'd have to say that it's not Chinese; it's Gullah Geechee. <laughs> Tia, I know you grew up in the North. In what ways were Matthew's recipes a revelation to you? A revelation. Mm. That's a that's a interesting and, and good way to put it. I would say the revelation for me through the recipes is the, the the legacy of the farm and the the connection to mm. to to his ancestors and to this land so a little bit about my my family story is my grandparents three of my four grandparents migrated north during the great migration they they all came from within half a mile of half a half an hour of each other outside of Montgomery, Alabama. Wetumpka, <laughs> Alabama, population four thousand four hundred. Eclectic, Alabama, the only eclectic city in the United States. Population four hundred still <laughs> to this day. And I come from a farming family. <laughs> Both of my grandfathers were sharecroppers, and they moved. My my father's father moved to Ohio. My mother's parents moved to New York, and then I was raised in Connecticut. As it turns out, I have an ancestor that is from 
Glenn County, which is where we live, that was born here 202 years ago. So the recipes to me represent this foundation that I have that through marrying Matthew and, and reading these recipes and eating this food that my family migrated, right? And I'm making full, I made a full circle in some aspects of my life back to where I'm from. Whereas Matthew, you know, Matthew's, you know, it's six generations living here, farming here, mm-hmm. you know, where my, my grandfather, Willie, you know, went to Dayton, Ohio, and my dad lives in England now. And, you know, I'm a very, very, bohemian. Um, very bohemian, <laughs> but fractured, you know, family that th- this, this, these recipes tell such a story to me of the tenacity and the, 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 the fortitude of the, the Matthew and his ancestors have for this land that is coming through the food. And then how we're connected. I think, yeah. I think a lot of times folks think that food from, from African Americans is a monolith. And not realizing that when you look at the African diaspora as a whole, there's so many things that you that we eat or that come from the African diaspora that oftentimes we take for granted, like okra, like red peas, like we take for granted that we that we eat rice, right? Which the this whole area, the Gullah Geechee corridor, those West Africans were brought here specifically to grow rice. We'll, we're often familiar with like the Uncle Ben's or Ben's Finest right now, but that was the reason we were brought here to grow rice. And then to think about how much rice plays out within every culture inside the United States, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost unfathomable to then come back and say, well, the only kind of food African Americans eat is soul food, or the only kind of things they eat is fried chicken. Or the only types of fruit they like are watermelon. That's is, is, that that's asinine to do something like that, right. because we have given so much, not just in having been enslaved, but into the culinary world itself mm-hmm. that would not exist if we had not been in place. Now I have an observation about your cookbook. This may be the most violent cookbook I have ever read. Uh, <laughs> Your ingredients are either smashed and roughly chopped or crushed or cracked or whipped. What do you have against these ingredients? <laughs> you know, it, it's what, how we talk, though, what right? Are these what do these do? ingredients do to you? Um, but but it's actually how we talk, right? You know, like like when you're telling somebody, yeah, finally chop this, right? Like, what does that mean exactly? It's like, what it means to Steve may be something different for one of your listeners that's in Ohio that's different from another one of your listeners that, that are in Maine. So at least we know that Life Slices has two listeners outside of T and I, right? But they all, I had to throw that in. I figured I Thank would got to get a laugh out of you too. I, I, I do appreciate that. Yes, 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 yes. You don't but know how think- right you are. <laughs> Let's hear but it for those let's four. Let's hear it for us four. Um, <laughs> you know, at this time we hear, we should hear the you know. but 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 really, Steve, that that's how we talk though. If I said, "Hey, Steve, go in there and rough chop this," you you wouldn't even think to turn to me and go rough chop. You just go in there and do it. But if I said, "Hey, Steve, go in there and I need I need you to finely dice this," you're like, "Uh, finely dice." You know, you're you're thinking to yourself, "What does?" 
What does he mean by finely diced? How big or how small? When I say smash something, literally, you know that all you need to do is smash it. You know, if I say this just needs to be whipped, you it, you consciously understand that word and how to do it. If I was like, I need you to incorporate 100% of the air that you can possibly incorporate into this thing to get the whipped cream to be, you'd, you'd sit back and your eyes would glass over. And so one of the things that, that T and I laugh about is that anybody that has some basic cooking acumen can go in and do any of these recipes. I did not, I wrote these recipes for everyone in the world to be able to follow and be able to create. I did not write them for only people that were foodies or culinarians or chefs or anything like that. I wanted the food to be uh, lifted by the people and not by just those that consider themselves to be in a, in a higher status. Cooking is violent. But cooking is violent anyway. I mean, it's knives. knives and it fire. is fire. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, you burn the hair off. Like, it's all those kinds of, yeah. It's, how, yeah. how do we not have a cookbook where it says, take out a Glock and shoot your peas? Right, shoot your peas, right? That sounds terrible. Know, that that might sorry. be taking it too far. <laughs> but it, there are books that are being written a lot about game right now. Like deer and I don't think there's anything about possum and raccoon or squirrel yet. But that that, that being the sole thing of the book. But... I do know that there are books on pheasant and quail and, like I said, venison and elk, mountain goats. Like, there's things that are out there now that, that a long time ago would have been like, ooh, who eats that? You yeah, I, I, I'm having a hard time. I'm growing more and more vegan because I'm having a hard time eating anything that enjoys cuddling. You hear uh, cows <laughs> like to cuddle, so I gave up beef. You know, deers are too cute. You think of Bambi, I can't eat a deer. It's like, if I ever find out tunas are friendly, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Is it is it actually because you cook them that you don't want to eat them anymore? Well, that could that yourself? could have something yeah. to do with right. it. Yeah. <laughs> you leave my friend Steve alone. I'm just <laughs> eating vegetables from now on. <laughs> and raw, raw vegetables. Speaking of ingredients, you do feature some ingredients that I've never heard of: uh, cow peas, Sea Island red peas, muscadine jelly, Georgia rattlesnake watermelons, to name a few. How difficult are these items to find in all over the country? Oh, not difficult at all. You can literally find any of those things on such places as Anson Mills. Anson Mills is one of the biggest uh, purveyors of some of these peas. Tom's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill. You can find some of those things. There's, There's also a company called Marsh Hen Mill. Or, you know, you could type in uh, Georgia Rattlesnake Watermelon and find it on Amazon. Like, there's all kinds of ways to find the seeds, and there's all kinds of ways to grow. And there's also all kind of way to already buy it ready for you to eat so or cook. They're not called Rattlesnake Watermelons because they bite, uh, do they? No, 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 no. They're called Georgia Rattlesnake Watermelon because the lines on it look like the rattler of a rattlesnake. So that's, and it's big. Like it, it's not like if you're thinking of one of the little melons that you can buy and it fit inside your refrigerator nice and easy. This is a 30 pound watermelon. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's a, it's a big one. Like we need to feed both of our families off of it, not just one. And uh, I'm guessing if you see one of those lines moving, you probably shouldn't choose that one. Yes. Cause that means that the, the rattlesnake has wrapped itself around the melon. <laughs> So you don't want to eat that one. <laughs> you mentioned that rice is a common ingredient in this cuisine. If mm-hmm. someone's on a low carb diet, 
can they replace the rice with rice cauliflower or something like that? Sure, why not? Absolutely. Sure, why not? Just understand that the cooking method is going to have to change somewhat because cauliflower takes a quarter of the time to cook as compared to rice. If somebody wants to try a new taste experience, like with Gulagichi uh, cuisine, I'm sorry, my mouth is not functioning today. Gulagichi, we're okay. Gulagichi, Gulagichi. Okay. If someone wants to try a new taste experience, how do, how do you recommend they start? How about you say, talk about that, babe? Because you always get me to taste stuff that I've just like, I, I might wouldn't have eaten before. Um, I mean... Y- like any other food, I mean, you're, it has to be prepared well, right? Yeah, if you're introducing true. somebody to something new, you're not going to bring them to someone who is practicing how to make this. Right. You're going to bring them to the authority. So you, that's I would say that's the first step. Is you know maybe it's let's go try this restaurant. Let's try something different. You know, and certainly having somebody with an open mind is going to help too. Right. Um, that, like you, you don't know, just walk in the store, I think, and grab dragon fruit because you saw saw it on some special one day right i think i think what you'd want to i mean you wouldn't buy a bunch of it i think what you want to do is buy one dragon fruit Mm -hmm. understand how to cut it eat it and then go from that taste experience to others i would tell anyone if you if you're going to start off with anything new the smallest amount you can possibly get to start it off with even when it comes to spices you know i've seen people spend upwards of like just ten twenty dollars on on a spice blend to come to find out that there was a thing in the spice blend they didn't like, and I'm always like, so you didn't want to try all the ingredients that were in there first before you went and spent your ten fifteen dollars. So I think that that is how I would say it. I would also say, you know, if you really want to get into some of the nuances, get yourself the book, the Flavor Bible, which then you can actually open, see pictures of things, and actually get some descriptions of the taste that you're about to experience. I need to get that in and commit it to memory before yeah. I cook another meal. Easy, the, easy. Flavor Bible. Is there anything about you or, or the book or your your work that I haven't asked about that you'd like to answer? Hmm. What's next? Yeah, definitely. I'd like to you know let all of your listeners know that what's next is we're working on our next cookbook. It's going to be about companion planting and the nutrient dense foods that can be created through that. Tia and I have created Strong Roots 9, which we are doing everything from consulting on agro-culinary things to we've actually created our own tea line based on the things that we're growing here at the farm. We have Zazu teas, which is a turmeric and we have hibiscus, hibiscus and, ginger. and ginger. And we also have a green tea, all of which are just they're just amazingly fresh cheese, all of which we grow all those things except for the green tea here at the farm. So I think that we, we have a lot of that. I would also say, please go to strongroots9.com so you can see all of the things that we have going on, on and, and follow us on social media at strongroots9. Also grab the book, Breast and Yam for sure. So you can have an idea of what Gullah Geechee cuisine is like and just another level of what's happening in the African diaspora. Well, I thank you so much for being here today. It's very enlightening. And I, I think I have to go eat lunch now. Yes. <laughs> good luck. Good luck with that. Good luck with your lunch. <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Our thanks to Matthew and Tia Rayford. Learn more about them and buy their teas at strongroots9.com. 
Their book, Press and Yam, is available at fine booksellers everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and like us wherever you download your podcasts and on social media. Music, courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved.